The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good evening, everyone, from the Trinity Long Room Hub, where we're online. My name is Eve Patton, and I'm director of the Hub, and I'm very pleased to welcome you all to this special panel discussion on the topic of literature and resistance. In uh, a minute, I'll be handing over to my colleague, Daryl Jones, who's going to chair this evening's discussion. Um, but before that, I just want to say how pleased we are in the Trinity Long Room Hub to be uh, partnering with the Center for Resistance Studies under the directorship of my colleague, Balaj Apoor. And the Center for Resistance Studies is going to be running this occasional series of events, discussions, and lectures on literature and resistance. Literature and resistance is, of course, a very wide topic, but a very important one, particularly for those of us who are working in the arts and humanities. So I'm absolutely delighted that this is happening. And I know it will be uh, the beginning of a, a really significant series uh, for all of us. So welcome again. And with that, I'm going to hand over to our chair for this evening, my colleague and professor of modern literature in Trinity, Daryl Jones. Daryl. Good evening, everybody, uh, and welcome. In 1851, the great American novelist Herman Melville wrote in a letter to his friend, the great American novelist Nathaniel Hawthorne. There is the grand truth about Nathaniel Hawthorne. He says no in thunder, but the devil himself cannot make him say yes. For all men who say yes, lie. The phrase no in thunder was taken up by the great American critic Leslie Fiedler in 1963 and uses the title for one of his best books. The function of genuinely great literature, Fiedler argued, was to resist, to act as what today we might call a site of resistance to dominant ideologies, received ideas, conventional wisdom. And I'd also want to remind you all that this is also, I think, the function of a university. If we expect our writers to give us comforting and confirming sound bites about who we are, we are making a category mistake about the function of literature. What people, what party, what church needs an enemy when it has a great writer in its ranks? Fiedler asked. Unless he bites the hand that feeds him, the writer cannot live. And this, those who would prefer him dead so that they can erect statues to him, can never understand. So we're here today to talk about literature and resistance with four great speakers. Uh, and I'll introduce them in the order uh, that they are going to be speaking. And each of our speakers will speak for about uh, 10 minutes, um, uh, one after the other, but I'll introduce them all up front and then we'll have, we'll have time for questions afterwards. Um, so our, our first speaker will be Mary Cosgrove, uh, uh, professor in German here at Trinity. Uh, Mary is a graduate of, of University College Dublin and was lecturer in German uh, there uh, uh, from 2002 to 2004. 
uh, before moving on to work at the University of Edinburgh in 2005, uh, where she was reader in German and then a professor of German at the University of Warwick in 2015 before joining uh, before joining us uh, in uh, rather 20, in 2014 before joining us in 2015. Uh, and her many publications uh, include Born and Auschwitz: Melancholy Traditions in Postwar German Literature in in 2014, uh, Sadness and Melancholy in German Language Literature and Culture. Uh, German Memory Contest, The Quest for Identity in German Literature, uh, winner of the Choice Outstanding Academic Title of 2007, and Grotesque Ambivalence, Melancholy and Mourning in the Prose Work of Albert Drach in 2004. And Professor Cosgrove is currently investigating the connections between literature, culture and pathology, with a particular for for focus on boredom and crisis. Uh, our second speaker, our next speaker, uh, is, is, is Carlo Gabler. Uh, Carlo works here in the Oscar Wilde Centre uh, in, in Trinity, uh, but has spent um, 30 years, he tells us, uh, in, in a variety of, of prisons. Um, most of his life has been in jail, uh, he says. Uh, he spent several years in, in, in the maze in Longkesh, 18 years in uh, uh, Her Majesty's Prison Magabri, uh, Category A, High Security Prison, um, as, a, as a writer in residence, um, I, I should say. Um, and uh, he's also worked in uh, prisons of Crumlin Road, uh, in, in, in McGilligan, uh, Hydebank College, Young Offenders Prison, uh, where he ran a Saturday club for female and male prisoners. And he's now back in HMP Magabri uh, doing creative writing, etc., etc he says, um, uh, and he's been in the Northern Irish Prison Service since uh, 92 or 93, so 30 years. And today he's going to talk about some forms of resistance uh, and texts plus a work of art that touch on them. Our third speaker will be Julie Bates. Uh, Julie's assistant professor in the School of English. Uh, she's co-director of the MPhil in Irish Writing uh, and of the Trini Trinity Centre for Beckett Studies. Uh, and her wonderful book, Beckett's Art of Salvage, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2017. Uh, and Julie's current Beckett-related research and teaching draws on the environmental humanities, exploring how the radical subjectivity of Beckett's writing provokes timely questions about relationships between the human, non-human, animal, and environment. And uh, the title of her talk today is Boy Scout Stuff, Beckett and Resistance. Uh, and our final speaker, Jude Lal Fernando, is Assistant Professor in the School of Religion, Theology and Peace Studies here at Trinity. And he's the coordinator of the MPhil in Intercultural Theology and Interreligious Studies and the Interreligious Studies Program. Uh, he's the director of the Trinity Center for Post-Conflict Justice. And his most recent publications are as the sole editor, Resistance to Empire and Militarization, Reclaiming the Sacred from 2020 and face in the, Faith in the Face of Militarization, Indigenous, Feminist, and Interreligious Voices from 2021. Uh, so those will be our speakers, and uh, uh, Mary has kindly agreed to kick us off. So I'll hand over to our first speaker, Mary Cosgrove. Thanks very much for that introduction, Daryl, and thank you, Eve, um, for, uh, for hosting this, and uh, thank you also, Balash, for for the invitation. So I'm going to come at this question from, um, from, from my own angle, which is German studies. And I've decided to focus on quite a difficult work actually um, for my talk, uh, a key German work of the 20th century by a key writer. And the writer is Peter Weiss or Peter 
Weiss, Peter Weiss, I, I have to pronounce it in the Germanic way. Um, so uh, I'll come to the work in a minute, just a little bit of background informa information on Weiss. Um, for those of you who haven't encountered him before, he was born in 1916 in Berlin. He never held German citizenship his whole life. Um, he learned after the Nazis came to power that his father was in fact a Christianized Jew who had married a Christian. The family left Germany in 1934. Luckily, they got away. They settled in Stockholm, where Weiss ultimately remained for the rest of his life, and he died there in 1982. In his autobiographical work of the um, early 1960s, uh, mid-1960s, he depicts himself as an inwards looking, self-preoccupied painter. So his desire is to be an artist, a visual artist, um, whose political awakening only really arrives when towards the end of the war, he watches the Allies footage of the concentration camp inmates as they're being liberated. Um, <clears throat> so it's, it's a fact when you read his uh, essayistic work and his work generally, that he evolved a political form of Jewish identity from that point on. So this is the moment of political awakening. Um, and I think that uh, for somebody who was didn't know that he was Jewish, but was de facto made Jewish by the Nuremberg race laws of 1935, um, his idea of Jewish identity is one based on solidarity. It's a sort of an intellectual political uh, decision that he, he takes. It's based on so solidarity with the Jewish victims of the Holocaust, and then more broadly, the victims of history in general. He takes up the causes of many minorities across a lot of his works. This is an ethical position that informed his literary aesthetics, and that, for example, it exerted profound influence on the famous German writer of more recent times, which some of you may have heard, whom some of you may have heard of, W.G. Siebold. So Weiss today is most well known for his documentary plays, which are or continue to be performed in the German speaking lands and also internationally. Die Ermittlung, the investigation, which is based on the Frankfurt Auschwitz trials of 1963 to 1965, which Weiss attended, and Mara Sad, which harks back to revolutionary France and the murder in 1793 of radical thinker and political figure Jean-Paul Marat. But I'm not going to focus on his dramatic work here. Instead, I'm going to talk about his magnum opus, a trilogy of novels written between 1975 and 1981. And um, I couldn't not talk about this novel because it's called Die Ästhetik des Widerstands, The Aesthetics of Resistance. Now, before I move to the novel, which I will really only talk about in sketches, um, I'd like to ponder some nuances of the verb to resist and its German equivalent, Widerstehen. So Widerstand is the noun in the title, the aesthetic, the aesthetic des Widerstands, and Widerstehen is the verb. I find that um, with regard to Weiss's work, these verbs correspond best 
to the sense of foundational self-assertion conveyed in the idea of standing firm, which is one way of defining to resist. Self-articulation is a basic form of self-assertion and is central to standing firm. Acts of resistance against and opposition to another entity, you know, foe or whatever it might be, which denote a further nuance in the meaning of to resist, cannot take place without this foundational self-defining, uh, which for vice must happen in language and in dialogue and in acts of interpretation. This is what the aesthetics of resistance is all about, all 1,000 pages of it, standing firm above all else and using that stance to mount a resistance as much intellectually and ethically as in combat. The trilogy never stops from page one, laying bare the effort to self-articulate, to understand, make sense, interpret, to document, and to commemorate the disasters of the 20th century, starting with the self-implosion and betrayals of the European left in the Spanish Civil War, the difficult journey of the anti-fascist resistance, the execution of many members of the underground anti-fascist movement, the Stalinist purges, the rise of fascism and national socialism, the crimes of the Holocaust. This monumental endeavor, it's a real panoramic sweep. It would be impossible without the voice of the individual who must stand firm in the face of history, carve out space and time in language for reflection and understanding and begin what I would call the labor of self-articulation, which is always the articulation of self in relation to others and to the world. So I'm now, I think this would work a bit better if this was a, an in-person event. I'm going to show you the object itself. So this is the trilogy. It is, it's big, right? It's big, it's, it's quite a doorstopper um, with its weight and its heft. Um, the narrative demonstrates, demonstrates immense historical and intellectual depth and scope. It's mesmerizing and often bewildering. It's an education in European politics and history and aesthetics from the vantage of the post-war period uh, when it was written, but also the narrative first person narrator is um, narrating from a point in the future after the events of 1933 to 1945. So it, from that vantage point and in light of the experiences of dictatorship and war that consumed Europe and the world in the 20th century, it revisits and reinterprets, for example, dozens of famous paintings such as Jericho's The Raft of the Medusa, Picasso's Guernica, David's Liberty, Leading the People. And not only that, but very many famous documented conversations between leading political figures are also woven in to this first person narrative. So like his plays, Weiss's Aesthetics of Resistance also has a documentary substratum. Although the first person narrator is a quasi fictional invention, Weiss did not fight in the Spanish Civil War. He was not a member of the proletariat 
um, yet his own flight from Germany into Swedish exile in the 1930s intersects with the narrator's story. Now, I'm going to lift up the book again itself, and I don't know how well you can really see this, but I think it's really interesting. If, if you open the pages of the book, so you can see it there, I'm holding up the double, right? We have columns of text. It has a very striking typographical appearance. So you have to imagine, this is only two pages, but this is how the entire 1,000 pages more or less looks throughout. It is comprised of 89 imposing blocks, uh, uh, most of which are more than 10 pages long. There's no chapter divisions and there's no paragraphing. So on the one hand, uh, the book is really imposing and monumental in its very self-representation in the way the page is set out for us. And Weiss was a visual artist, so this is significant. Um, but on the other hand, it's remarkably unadorned and minimalist somehow, pared back. Um, none of the dozens of paintings um, that are mentioned in the text are actually reproduced in the text at all. Uh, they are sort of um, uh, pulverized is the wrong word, but they're just put into language in a massively intense way. And the discussion of the raft of the Medusa uh, lasts for around 40 pages. Um, and uh, the discussion of Guernica is similar. Um, so with that aesthetic in mind, um, I have to ask if this novel, which from its first page, its very first page, which figures the three proletarian resistance fighters, if it's preoccupied with the question of access to culture of the working or excluded classes, how is it supposed to perform an aesthetics of resistance in literary form when Weiss opted for such an impenetrable aesthetic form himself. This is a real conundrum. It smacks of paradox. And it seems to pose the question whether literary aesthetics um, can resist anything um, uh, if they are difficult and if they are um, monumental in the way that this text is. Uh, can aesthetics be political at all? Um, or should we rather consider art to be an autonomous sphere somehow separate from um, politics and society? Of course, this is not what Weiss was trying to say. The trilogy, in fact, makes an impassioned case for the relevance to political worlds of literary language and all aesthetic forms. It asks, what is literature to do in times of fascism? How can we draw on its resources and, and on cultural forms um, and resources more broadly in order to stand firm in the face of oppression? How can it help us during these events and after these events? And I think that uh, I've just sort of um, shown the answer to that question. Uh, the short answer is with immense effort from our side, so the aesthetics of resistance can happen, but the input from readers or participators must be immense. So the aesthetics of resistance, by definition, if we can speak of such a phenomenon, is difficult. The engagement of individuals with cultural forms and their political histories, the dialogue with other individuals and groups, 
is what forms the basis of resistance in that preliminary sense I talked about earlier, that sense of withstanding. Um, withstanding in the first instance, perhaps not a recognizable foe, but withstanding the sheer overwhelming of history and historical events. Intellectual engagement with material culture provides us with the weapons to articulate, diagnose, resist. And, and yet the very form and layout of the novel makes the reader work as hard as resistance fighters. So uh, in this work, the individual, their various communities, disaster, defeat, and solidarity, they all go hand in hand. With Vice of the Later Years, and the last uh, installment of this trilogy was published one year before his um, death in 1982, there's no such thing as the disconnected inwards looking subject of his earlier work. And the act of writing in the first person is an act of solidarity and commemoration because it's also testimony. It bears witness to the fight against evil and it honors those who lost their lives in so doing the resistance fighters, it pays tribute to the historical figures and also the victims of the Holocaust. During fascism and afterwards, when the Second World War has ended and the Cold War prevails, to inscribe is to stand firm, to etch the word I on the page is to hold out, it is to oppose. To stand firm is to fight back. In vice, standing firm is inconceivable without individual and collective intellectual engagement with cultural and aesthetic forms. Um, so uh, I'm just going to cut to, to the end there in case I'm um, going over time. Um, and what I'd say in conclusion is, okay, thanks, uh, Fran, I can see that. His trilogy is noble and brilliant. I recommend it to everyone. But it, wasn't, it was not a success, not really. Not even amongst German studies scholars. Most people have not read it. It is difficult to stick with. It's demanding. You're confronted with your own lacunae all the time. Um, and reflecting this, only the very first installment has ever been translated into English. So it's an interesting case of failure, we might say, and yet it provides us with a template for the important labor of how resistance as an intellectual project with an ethical base in the community can work. Thank you very much for your attention. Hello, I'm going to talk about four different kinds of uh, resistance in prison. One, resistance to the facts, to guilt. Adam, the first prisoner I befriended in the maze, was ex-UDR, Ulster Defence Regiment, and UDA, Loyalist Paramilitary Organisation. He murdered a Catholic man using his service revolver, a not untypical story. When he arrived in the maze, he knew he had committed the offence, he told me. At the same time, he didn't actually believe he had committed the offence. It was five years before he could say, no ifs, no buts, I did it. And he wasn't alone. Every prisoner, at least every prisoner he'd spoken to, he told me, were the same. Every prisoner, assuming he was guilty, arriving in jail, experienced this duality. They'd done it. They hadn't done it, somehow. 
It was a coping strategy, he thought. No prisoner at a trial's end, which is an attempt to elude jail, as he understood it, could turn on a sixpence and go, yeah, bang to rights, take me down. Every prisoner needed that adjustment period, three to five years for those convicted of capital crimes, during which they could gradually diminish and reduce their resistance until finally they could take responsibility. I met Adam in 1994. 15 years later, I ran a book club in a different prison for a number of years. We did a lot of books. But the two most popular books by popular acclaim, we ran them together one evening as a pair, were A Happy Death and The Outsider, both by Albert Camus. What most impressed the club's members, and I was sitting there, I listened to the discussion, was Merceau's readiness in The Outsider to put his hand up at the get-go and say, I put five slugs in him. Some book club members, they were all prisoners, with long, serving pretty long sentences, had gone through the resistance period. Some, there were some prisoners who'd been on remand for a long time, were still in the resistance period. But all were astounded by this Pied Noir, albeit he's a fiction, who accepted at the moment he committed the offence that he'd done it, the truth as they saw it, that set him free. Two, rule breaking, which in the eyes of rule breakers is often virtuous nonconformity. Now, before I get to this, I want to draw a sharp distinction between breaking rules which are peculiar to jail, breaking rules which are not peculiar to jail. Taking drugs in jail or out, you're not meant to do it. When you take drugs in jail, you're breaking the rules. You're refusing to conform. But it's the rules you can only refuse to conform with in a jail that interests me here, interests me here. So one sunny day in the lifer's house, I notice a lot of pink-skinned, half-naked men walking clockwise, anti-clockwise, anti-clockwise in the yard. And I probably only noticed the direction because there were so many of them. I got to the cell of the man I'd come to see, Derry, Republican, life sentence, but for a domestic, not a paramilitary offence. I asked about the yard and he said, oh, yes, we always go anti-clockwise, he said. Everyone does. It's a jail thing. Uh, then he explained that if a newbie came in and he started walking clockwise, the other guys would be quick to put him right. No, no, no. You walk anti-clockwise, mate. Always anti-clockwise. And my, um, my expert thought that this went back to the Fenians. The Brits expected them to go clockwise, so they went the other way. If you have rules, as day follows night, you have rule breaking, which in turn spawns resistance mythology. Rules catalyze non-conforming because rules attempt to rule on absolutely everything that might or can or could or will happen inside a prison. And you know, the opportunities for conflict are endless. Rules annoy, they oppress, they don't fit with human experience or need. They're mad and hobbling and provoking so prisoners don't comply when and where the chance occurs, sometimes deliberately, intentionally, calculatedly, such as in the yard, where they're expected to go clockwise, or so they think. Thus, they go anti-clockwise, which is a neat, elegant form of non-conforming resistance. But 
that's the exception rather than the rule. On the whole, infractions are inadvertent, unconsidered, casual, and they generate ugliness. Most rule-breaking and non-conforming ends in tears. The Barlini Special Unit in HMP Barlini and the HMP Grendon Therapeutic Unit both allowed derogation from most of the rules with incredible positive results, though these were largely dismissed by the Scottish Office and the Home Office. And the classic texts here are Jimmy Boyle's A Sense of Freedom and Hugh Collins's much less well-known but incredible book, Autobiography of a Murderer, Not for the Faint-Hearted. If you want to read about the state destroying success because of its addiction to punishment and prisoners you know, doing their whack, rule taking by prisoners. These are the texts to read. I'll just add one final caveat. Uh, a governor once said to Erwin James, brilliant sometime uh, Guardian prison correspondent and lifer, the British criminal justice system is absolutely committed to rehabilitation, Erwin. The only trouble is it just doesn't know how much. Three. Resistance by replicating the standards of the world outside. You're not breaking the rules here. This type of resistance is, is technically legitimate. No infraction is involved, but it, it might be more dangerous to the system because it's an assertion of autonomy, not a derogation that can be reviewed or punished by, you know, being dragged over to the block. What am I talking about? I'll give you an example. A woman prisoner I taught insisted that our session was always at lunchtime in the recreation room of her unit, and whenever I showed up, there would be a table with a tablecloth, actually a white sheet she'd hemmed by hand, and a teapot, milk in a jug, hobnobs on a plate, teacups, jail issue, Pyrex, not porcelain, but still teacups, and paper napkins, actually green hand towels stolen from the toilets, etc., etc. We also reclined on hideous prison-issue plastic chairs, on cushions which she'd made and embroidered, etc., etc. This wasn't just for me. Everyone, probation officers, governors, teachers, anyone who came got the afternoon tea shtick. Why? Because as she told me, she wasn't going to live like a pig. She wasn't going to drink out of a stained mug and slouch around in sweatpants all day watching Jeremy Kyle. She was going to live decently. Um, I once said to her that she was like Mrs. Morell in uh, Sons and Lovers, you know, who wouldn't live like a collier's wife. And she was, uh, she was extremely amused by this. Um, so this latter-day Mrs. Morell and her mode of resistance was pretty unique. I didn't know anyone else who behaved like that. But prisoners endlessly resist by following practices associated with life outside. Opportunities are limited. There's less of this than the non-conforming stuff I've talked about earlier. Um, but they try very hard. It's a thing, and it always starts with education and reading. Silito's The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner and other 60s texts about British working class life have always found favour with prisoners who have chosen this route. Four, resistance by rebellion. That's rioting, violence against staff, hostage taking, rooftop protests, hunger striking, dirty protests, suicide. Dirty protests are something that we specialize in Ireland. Um, it's our niche form of resistance. We, um, um, you know, 
feces and urine is collected in a tetra pack. Um, it's chopped up with a prison knife. No tetra pack. It would be very hard to conduct a dirty protest. And then it's either poured under the cell door to flood the, um, the landing or it's smeared on the walls. Again, with the prison knife used as a pallet knife. Um, dirty protests you probably associate with the 80s. They never stopped. All the dirty protesters that I've talked to believed they had no alternative. They were desperate. It was all they could do, they believed. Rioters, I've met many of them too, same story. They believed they had no alternative but to barricade the bulkheads, get the pool cues, and go to war with the riot squad. I cannot emphasize enough that these activities were born out of hopelessness. And if you want an artistic representation of penal desperation, go and look at Shane Cullen's monumental and controversial artwork based on the H-Block hunger strikers' messages currently hanging in the Museum of Modern Art in Kilmainham. It's desolating, highly recommended. But back to resistance. Well, once extreme resistance is embarked on, hatred and rage take over. The event takes on a life of its own. Negotiation is impossible. It only ends with the resistors when the resistors back down or when the resistors are broken. Later, the victors will give the resistors, the losers, something. There'll be some concession. That's also part of the theater, the protocol. The losers will use this in their turn to claim actually they won. It's their victory. With hindsight, it always seems what is conceded is very little and should have been given before the trouble started. But we're always wise after these fevers because by then it's all too clear that all that's actually been achieved by a dirty protest or a riot or whatever is that the reservoir of antagonisms, and every jail has one, has been topped up with massive extra helpings of the black sludge of misery and bitterness. The theme of this event is literature and resistance. Without a doubt, the literature that best explores all these different things, the rule-breaking, the non-conforming, the whole gamut, the whole heap, is the entire oeuvre of Edward Bunker, in my opinion, a great writer. Again, like Hugh Collins, not for the faint-hearted. His novels are The Animal Factory, Memoir Little Boy Blue, no Beast So Fierce, his masterpiece, and Dog Eat Dog. If you are interested in literature generated inside, and the generation of literature inside, which I haven't touched on, is another form of resistance, then you read The Prison Muse by Julian Broadhead, which is an account of writing um, in British and Irish prisons since the end of the 19th century, and you read Prison Literature, in America, The Victim is Criminal and Artist by Bruce Franklin, which does the same thing. It's a history of writing in prison in America. Um, well, it basically goes from the 17th century. And uh, these are both wonderful books, and I would make them compulsory reading for all ministers of justice, certainly in the United Kingdom, probably Ireland, past, present, and future, starting with Chris Grayling. Thank you very much. I've loved those first, first two talks. Um, okay, so I am going to speak to you about Beckett. 
Um, I hope you can see my screen. Um, so the the topic, uh, the title of the topic is Boy Scout Stuff, Beckett and Resistance. Um, and I'm going to give you a sort of a whistle-stop tour of Beckett's wartime work um, as a writer, but also in a, a more hands-on capacity. Let's see if this will move for me. Yes. Um, so this is a quote from Emily Moran's wonderful book, Beckett's Political Imagination. Beckett dismissed his wartime activities as Boy Scout stuff and as something that did not warrant particular pride. When Richard Stern asked him in 1977 whether he was ever political, Beckett reportedly answered, no, but I joined the resistance. His oft-cited statements about ignorance, inability and despair are also indications of his lucidity concerning the modest capacity of literature for social and political intervention. When he was asked why he joined the French resistance, he resorted to the same idiom of impulse and inevitability. He said almost apologetically that he simply couldn't stand by with his arms folded. A decade in the making, Emily Moran's book exhaustively documents the range of causes to which Beckett gave his support, whether through public declaration as a signatory to a petition, putting his name to a cause through a collective letter, or writing a statement to be read in court, by offering a manuscript for auction, making clandestine donations, or requesting that royalties in certain countries should be donated to particular causes. Moran traces the array of causes to which Beckett gave his support in these ways, including Algerian nationalism, the Black Panthers, a range of independent bookshops and small publishers in France, Irish communism, Polish solidarity, the Scottsboro Boys, Spanish republicanism, um, and she also traces those issues against which she protested, among them apartheid, the Rushdie Fatwa, and censorship in Ireland, Britain, and the Soviet Union. Um, I wanted to show you these slides just because I feel like this poster should be on, on T-shirts that everybody should be wearing at all times. Um, so, so I wanted to give you an example of Beckett's willing and involuntary participation um, in index uh, on censorship campaigns. Um, so the, the reference here, the, the Index on Censorship page um, on the right um, uh, makes reference to Beckett's play Catastrophe and Václav Havel's play um, Mistake. Catastrophe, um, it was a play written by Beckett in 1982, perhaps his most overtly political work, and it was dedicated to the Czechoslovakian dissident writer Václav Havel, who was then imprisoned and denied writing materials. Um, Havel subsequently became the, the president of Czechoslovakia and then the first Czech president. The play was performed as part of a charity event in support of Havel, and it led to the campaigning group Index on Censorship requesting the use of Beckett's image in an advertising campaign. Beckett was approached by the Czech-British um, dramatist Tom Stoppard and asked if he could provide an image. Um, uh, Stoppard didn't know that the advertising company Saatchi and Saatchi were going to get their hands on the image, um, but this is what we ended up with. If Samuel Beckett had been born in Czechoslovakia, we'd still be waiting for Godot. Um, Stafford sent Beckett an embarrassed apology, but he received the brief and, brief and magnanimous reply, nothing against it. By all accounts, he wasn't, he wasn't upset. I think he was kind of entertained by it. Okay. When the Second World War broke out, Beckett wanted to help the French military effort, specifically the military effort. Infamously, he said he preferred France in war to Ireland at peace. As Moran notes, it's clear that Beckett himself was driven by an ideal of service to the military front, 
As early as April 1939, he affirmed that he would put himself at the disposition of France should a war break out, and he fled back to France from Greystones the day after the declaration of war. During the Phony War, he remained keen to serve in the French army, first in an undefined capacity, then as an ambulance driver, and he later worked for the Irish Red Cross in Salo in an area devastated by successive German and Allied bombings. Um, these are some images of Beckett in Saint-Lô. So, so this is an image of the, the city, of the town bombed into ruins um, by, by Allied, by American and British um, planes, um, completely pointlessly. Um, and this is Beckett over here uh, lounging, looking kind of loose with his leg crossed um, beside his, uh, his fellow Irish Red Cross workers. After the war, Beckett went back to visit his mother um, and it was difficult for him to return to France. So he sidestepped the travel issues by joining the Irish Red Cross. Uh, the, the Irish Red Cross workers were later decorated by the French state um, in a Dublin ceremony in 1948. Beckett was awarded in his absence for his work as storekeeper interpreter in Salo. This quote I've given you here is from a text Beckett wrote for broadcast on RTE radio at the time, then Radio Erin, but it was likely never broadcast until the 1990s. The lines I've, I've put here are, some of those who were in Sanlo will come home realizing that they got at least as good as they gave, that they got indeed what they could hardly give, a vision and a sense of a time-honored conception of humanity in ruins, and perhaps even an inkling of the terms in which our condition is to be thought again. These will have been in France. Terence Colleen has described how, in this piece, Beckett is particularly concerned to undermine the opposition of giving and receiving, especially insofar as this involves a hierarchy, the handing down from someone who has to someone who has not. Beckett suggests instead that the process is two-way, that even the most deprived recipient, especially the most deprived recipient, has something to give to the donor. What that something is cannot be quantified, like the stocks of penicillin Beckett refers to earlier in the piece, but can best be described as an experience in destitution, a lesson in abjection. Beckett's experience in Salo um, had a, a formative experience on him, um, on his aesthetic imagination, um, as well as on his kind of ethical formation as well. Ruins feature frequently in the, the text from this point on. Okay, so this is back to, to Emily Moan, who, who has combed the archives um, uh, and, and traced through Beckett's actual engagement um, with the resistance. Obviously, the resistance was composed of a, a variety of different cells um, across a variety of different um, political spectrums, left to right. The particular cell that Beckett worked for was Gloria SMH, which was under the command of the SOE, and um, the British Intelligence Service. Um, so, so Beckett was, was working for the Allies um, uh, in solidarity with, um, uh, as he put it, his Jewish friends. Um, so so it was, he was working um, for the French and the, the British, as he thought. But with his work for Gloria SMH came a new proximity between writing, translation, and coding. The military information that Beckett collated, translated, and typed was concealed among his own papers. And um, so that included the translations he was writing of, of Murphy, of the novel Murphy at the time, but most importantly, the novel Watt that he was writing during the war um, and that he distributed over, over six notebooks, six teeming notebooks. These absorb Beckett's attention throughout the war years and are laden with the wartime baggage that haunts their rich adornments, fragmentary messages, lists and calculations. 
Indeed, the proximity between these jottings and secret code once seemed so obvious that the London War Office withheld the notebooks to scrutinise them when Beckett returned to Dublin via London in April 1945. And here are some images. I hope you can see some of the images here. I like that we're taking turns showing you pages of books. It seems appropriate to me. Um, but I hope you can see, if nothing else, there are all of these doodles um, uh, of, of figures, all of these little drawings. There's lots of crossings out. And there, there are what seem to be um, lists, numbers, codes. There's a musical notation here. Um, uh, and so you can see why, um, why the London War Office might have been, might have been suspicious. Um, so the text that Beckett wrote in French in 1946 and 1947, um, uh, in, including what? Um, engage in coded ways with the vernacular and coordinates of the French resistance of his time serving um, during the war. Slang terms and distinctive vocabularies featured in resistance movements quite naturally, given the context in which secrecy, double meanings and coded illusion remained vital. Okay, so this is an image of Jérôme Landon, um, the publisher of Les Editions de Minuit, and he's there um, leaning over, over Beckett. Uh, the quote here um, is a contribution that Beckett made to a celebration uh, in 1962 of Langdon for, for a broadcast on Cologne Radio. I owe him everything, but should I have owed him nothing, or rather nothing beyond what we all owe him, I would still be saying before such purity, such nobility of character, such courage, he is a great publisher and a great man. Uh, this, this is gushing enthusiasm um, for somebody like Beckett. So Landon, I wanted to, to just point you in, in his direction because Landon is, um, he was the publisher, as I've said, of Edition de Minuit. He joined the resistance movement um, in 1942. In his case, he joined um, Combat, combat uh, that particular cell. He was Jewish and he was very active. He was a, a very um, political and ethically minded figure. And um, he was involved in the formation of Les Editions de Minuit, so-called because it operated undercover or at night. Um, which was founded by, by a range of members of resistance cells during the war. And throughout the war, published a series of clandestine novels. And after the war, uh, Landon approached writers, including Beckett, um, whose, whose work he respected for its um, kind of uh, unflinching, intransigent uh, experimentalism, for its refusal to, to, to write in a, in a purely intelligible way. There was a sort of anger to the readership. Um, who had been responsible or who had stood by um, during the war. Uh, Landon was also very politically active during the Algerian war in the late 1950s. He published attacks and petitions against the use of torture. This led him into conflict with the government um, and Beckett stood by him. But I just wanted to point that out because Beckett's three novels, um, Malloy, Malone Dies and The Unnameable, were published by Landon after the war um, and they came out under the, the publishing imprint of Edition de Minuit, which meant that they were read in a certain way by French readers at the time. Beckett understood that he was participating in this kind of um, resistance legacy of writing. Okay, so I have a, a couple of slides to close on now um, about what. So I showed you the, the what notebooks um, and those, those doodles. Um, what is Beckett's most direct engagement with fascist propaganda? A self-consciously expansive and disordered text, Watt repeatedly satirizes the profusion of fascist rhetoric to which Beckett was exposed while he traveled in Nazi Germany in 1936. 
Emily Moran, among others, has noted that Beckett tried to improve his German um, while he was, was in, um, in, in Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Um, he, he was there for six months. So he immersed himself in Nazi propaganda as a means of doing this. Um, he sought out native conversational partners, familiarised himself with newspapers, viewed propaganda films and listened to radio broadcasts of speeches by Hitler, Goering and other prominent Nazis. His diaries that he kept during his period in Germany repeatedly equate Nazism with an extreme verbosity of the worst kind. Um, Beckett described one particular address by Goering as an interminable harangue. Drawing on these experiences, Watt engages with fascism predominantly on the level of propaganda, interrogating its capacity to simultaneously invite and elide extreme violence and cruelty through this excess of language. So the novel stages the way in which propaganda dissolves language at the level of meaning. This is particularly evident in the passages on the pot, um, the pot in Mr. Knott's house. Um, and I was thinking of this with the, the first presentation. Um, like Weiss's text, this is imposing. Um, this is, there, there are all of these columns of relentless and um, unflagging text. Um, and again, as like readers of Weiss, we have to work hard to decode the text. So if your mental health will sustain it, I'm going to read you this passage. For Watt now found himself in the midst of things which, if they consented to be named, did so as it were with reluctance. And the state in which Watt found himself resisted formulation in a way no state had ever done, in which Watt had ever found himself, and Watt had found himself in a great many states in his day. Looking at a pot, for example, or thinking of a pot, at one of Mr. Knott's pots, of one of Mr. Knott's pots, it was in vain that Watt said pot, pot. Well, perhaps not quite in vain, but very nearly. For it was not a pot, the more he looked, the more he reflected, the more he felt sure of that, that it was not a pot at all. It resembled a pot, it was almost a pot, but it was not a pot of which one could say pot, pot, and be comforted. It was in vain that it answered with unexceptionable adequacy all the purposes and performed all the offices of a pot. It was not a pot. And it was just this hairbreadth departure from the nature of a true pot that so excruciated Watt. For if the approximation had been less close, then Watt would have been less anguished. For then he would have said, this is a pot and yet not a pot. No, but then he would have said, this is something of which I do not know the name. In early drafts of the novel, so in the, the notebooks, the pot is described as an invariable Eintopf. So this is a German dish with a unique resonance in the context of Nazi propaganda, which Beckett begrudgingly ate on numerous occasions while in Germany and that he complained about in his, his diaries. Um, so this is, this is a, a quote from James McNaughton, who's, who's Beckett in the politics of aftermath, um, uh, similarly, like Moran's book, um, gives uh, an amazing insight into, into the Second World War and how, how it features, how it figures imaginatively and features aesthetically in Beckett's writing. So, as McNaughton explains, Nazi propaganda heavily promoted Sunday Eintopf recipes. The idea was to use the week's leftovers, thereby encouraging thrift. What money family saved was be, to be donated to a charitable organization, contribution to which was mandatory, providing winter relief for impoverished Germans. Just so, Nazism cleverly thickened the stew with the binding starch of national community and shared sacrifice. So it's a government mandated display of ethno-national solidarity. And the Eintopf in this way 
sublimates the concerns over food shortage that served as an important justification for Hitler's Lebensraum policy, while also eliding the suffering and destitution directly inflicted by Nazi policies on undesirable elements of German society. So to conclude, Beckett's writing, especially the works produced during and immediately after the war, might be described as literature resisting the myth of human heroism. These works targeted the fascist violence of the recent past, while also challenging the strain of contemporary French nationalism, which called for art that celebrated humanist unity and post-war optimism. Beckett was totally opposed to this anti-historical aesthetic impulse, writing in 1945 that the human is a term reserved for times of great massacres, suggesting that such political disengagement can very easily become complicit in proto-fascist historical revisionism. This is surely one of the most important ways in which Beckett's writing serves as an example of how literature can act as a site of resistance. Thank you. Thank you, Julie. This evening, I want to talk about poetry as a form of resistance, particularly in the midst of war and violence. What has poetry got to do with resistance to war and violence? Is it by writing poetry on peace and nonviolence? No. As we know, the absence of war is not peace. What is the opposite of war then? It's creativity. It is here poetry can emerge as creative resistance. How and why poetry? Dorothy Sol, one of the most outspoken theologians in post-war Germany, who is also a poet, in an article titled, Breaking the Eyes of the Soul, says, I quote, a poem should demand and create no less attentiveness than solving a problem in mathematics that demands our undivided attention, end of quote. The emphasis here is on utmost attentiveness. What does this attentiveness do? Sol goes further, I quote, there is a kind of speaking that places us into relation with the ground of the depth of our being. And without this attentiveness, we are capable neither of beauty nor of truth. End of quote. Poetry does not simply probe into our thinking. It touches our entire being. Being understood not as individual existence, but as a person in a web of relationships, Allah, Martin Buber, and Emmanuel Levinas. Poetry's effectivity lies not necessarily in its rationality, but in its affectivity that moves the reader, or more accurately, the listener, towards the transformation of relationships. It is this power to touch the core of our existence that makes poetry 
as resistance to war and violence. No war or act of violence can take place without a process of rationalization. There is no irrational war. Wars erupt because there is a cause and a conviction to the righteousness of it. It is always not only rationalized, but also legitimized and sometimes morally justified by constructing the other as not being human. There is an us versus them rigid binary created. The art of poetry that touches the entire existence of the reader, listener, carries the power to resist the ideological justifications of war, not only asserting the humanity of the victim, but also speaking to the humanity of the perpetrator. It carries the power to resist war and violence that many official ritualistic denunciations of mass atrocities do not have. It engages with lives by penetrating the reality, evokes an alternative consciousness and envisions a different world. Therefore, the opposite of war is not any kind of peace, but poetic creativity. Let me now give a range of instances that illustrates poetic resistance. Two of the most Latin American poets, Ernesto Cardenal and Domhel de Camara, treated poetry as contemplation, or vice versa. Cardenal once wrote, blending religious and secular tones, I quote, you can't be with God and be neutral. True contemplation is resistance. And in poetry, gazing at clouds is resistance I found in jail." End of quote. On another occasion, he wrote in a poem regarding the Nicaraguan dictatorship in the 1970s. I quote, God loves Anastasio Somoza, but not the dictator Anastasio Somoza. End of quote. He wrote a poem under the title, I was born for an extremist love, identifying himself as a poetic revolutionary. Here is a short poem of Helda Camara, which appeals to the transformation of relationships in the time of Brazilian dictatorship. I quote, the stone suffers because all speak of its hardness. And yet, you used to look for a stone as a pillow for your head. For you knew and you know that the hope of stones is to serve. When they serve, they become as soft as clouds." End of quote. Thich Nhat Hanh, the Zen Vietnamese monk, who was also a great poet, was resisting the invasion of Vietnam. He was assisting refugees who were fleeing the war. Once, he witnessed how a young girl was raped by a sea pirate. The victim committed suicide. Out of despair, the monk writes this well-known poem titled, Call Me By My True Names. 
please note, there is no one name here, but many. I will read only a few stanzas. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am also the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and the door of my heart could be left open, the door of compassion." End of quote. Let me move to a poem from the country of my birth, Sri Lanka, titled The Murder. On the 31st of May, 1981, a group of Sinhala Buddhist nationalists, aided by the state security apparatus, set the Tamil library in Chefna on fire destroying around 90,000 books, including unpublished rare manuscripts. A Tamil Muslim poet, Emme Nuhuman, employs Buddhist imagery in an attempt to speak to the conscience of the Sinhala Buddhists. I quote, Lord Buddha was shot dead. He lays on the steps of Chafna Library. But if we hadn't killed him, we wouldn't have been able to kill even a fly. The plain clothes policemen dragged the corpse inside. They covered the Buddha's body with 90,000 books and lit the fire with the Sihalovada Sutta. Lord Buddha's body turned into ashes and so did the Dhammapada. End of quote. How does the poet appeal to the conscience of the perpetrator here? You have to kill your own Buddha first if you want to kill someone else. Let me move to a poem written in the aftermath of 9-11. This poem profoundly overturns the legal global binary, either you are with us or against us, that arose as a response to 9-11. Suhair Hamad, an Arab Muslim poet who lived in New York City at the time, writes the following poem in her work, Crisis of Terror. I quote, fire in the city air. I feared for my sister's life in a way never before. And then, and now, I fear for the rest of us. First, please God, let it be a mistake. The pilot's heart failed. The plane's engine died. Then please God, let it be a nightmare. Wake me now. Please God, after the second plane, please don't let it be anyone who looks like my brothers. My hand went to my head. My head went to the numbers within it of the dead Iraqi children, the dead in Nicaragua, the dead in Rwanda, who had to wee with fake sport wrestling for America's attention. End of quote. The poet captures 
polyphony of voices that is internationalist and transcultural. This poem overcomes not only rigid binaries effectively, such as Islam versus West, Arab versus rest, etc., but also the categories of worthy victims and unworthy victims, as Noam Chomsky puts it, or grievable lives and ungrievable lives, as Judith Butler has exposed. The war in Afghanistan was justified not only on the basis of global war on terror, but also on the slogan of saving women from men. Aswati Plakal, an Indian poet living in Ireland, in her Dear Salma, originally written in Malayalam, gives voice to a woman who fled Kabul to a so-called free country where she languishes as a sex worker. The woman speaks with another woman who is still in Kabul and sees no difference between the two. I quote, Dear Salma, you'd have shed that long black cloak which reveals nothing but your sparkling eyes. I know very well that you don't know me, but I know you are there somewhere in Kabul. Me here in this big city, which you may recognize if I name it. You know what I do now. I am pulling down my tiny skirt now. There I can see the swollen red patches, the marks of my newly earned freedom. End of quote. Back to Dorothy Sol now. Sol in her article refers to Johann Georg Hamann's Aesthetica Nuke, Nuke, written in 1762. Sol reminds us how Hamann, as a thinker, critically engaged with the European Enlightenment and reclaimed poetry against the world of prose, scientific writing, logical deduction and commerce. I quote Sol. Is it possible to turn back to where poetry, expelled as something merely feminine, may come home again? Poetry is the maternal language of humanity by which we become healed. End of quote. The paternal jargon of voice based on absolute binaries is in returning to poetry itself, resistance that envisions a different kind of peace? Doesn't return to poetry give hope in a world wounded by unending wars and violence? I will end with a poem from the most celebrated Palestinian poet, Mahmoud Darwish, which was written closer to his death, but filled with undying hope. Let me recite. Shout so that you hear my, yourself. Shout so that you know that you are still alive and you know that life is possible on this earth. Invent a hope for words or an area or a mirage to prolong hope and sing for beauty is freedom. I say life defined only as the opposite of death is not life. Thank you for your attentiveness. Thank you, Jude, and thanks to 
all of our speakers for for wonderful uh, and um, you know in many ways very complementary uh, uh, to one another uh, uh, papers. Um, there's we only really have five minutes, uh, and so I, I apologize for this. There, there are a number of questions that have, have turned up, some 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 great ones, and, and I certainly have questions. But really, I think we can only uh, um, we can only have time for one question, uh, which which is a, a general one that I, I, I think um, all, all of our speakers could, could 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 have something to say about. So 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 Peter Duffy. Um, asks here, does resistance almost always involve a binary type relationship? Is it them and us, self and other, good and bad, you know, state and individual, or, or, or whatever it is? Um, or, or is it more fluid, more complex than that? Um, Carlo, I know you have to you, you have to dash off, so maybe you could you could go first and then we'll we'll, we'll go around the table. Um. I, it's something I've thought about, and I don't know the answer. I do know that I've met an enormous, a very large number of men in prison who have been, um, they have been the principal obstacle standing in the way of their progress. They themselves have sabotaged themselves for all sorts of different reasons and in all sorts of different ways. The other thing, that I would say about um, complex relationship between people who have power and people who are in the power of people who have power is that it's a, um, they both nourish each other. So people who um, argue with prison officers and prison officers who argue with prisoners, um, they're in it together. They need each other. It's it's a symbiotic relationship. They they kind of go looking. It's a very, you know for the other to fulfil the role that, that they need the other to fulfil. It's a very very odd thing, and it has to, it can only be dealt with by sidestepping, stepping away from what you think is your inevitable, um, the the stepping away from the inevitability of conflict and seeing your life in different terms. Thanks, Carlo. Uh, Mary, do you want to have a go at this one? Yeah, thanks, Daryl, and thanks to uh, to everybody else. Um, great listening. I really, really enjoyed listening to all of your papers. Um, I would say, I think on the basis of the writer that I'm talking about, but I actually also think that Jude in the last paper was saying something uh, quite similar, that, um, you know, must resistance always be binary? In the sense of opposition, yeah, that sort of suggests me against you. Um, what I was trying to do in teasing out the nuance of, of the verb to resist this idea of standing firm, it's like a preliminary stage that doesn't necessarily have to lead, lead to a binary. So I, I would agree with, uh, with Jude that um, what we have is a polyphony in resistance. It has to be solidarity. It has to be community, a polyphony of voices, international and transcultural. This breaks down binaries, interest in other struggles. So Peter Weiss is actually also very interested in Vietnam um, and it features in this work. So um, uh, I, I think um, in a nutshell, I think resistance presupposes an understanding 
of the problem of binaries, of binary thinking. And um, that the text that I've talked about is a maelstrom. It is a maelstrom of voices channeled through a figure from history, voices of the dead, voices of the heroic, voices of the guilty. Um, and just, I got a great comment from somebody in the audience uh, uh, about um, Vice's self-reflection um, as a potential perpetrator. And already in the 1960s, he's saying, I could have been a perpetrator. I didn't know that I had Jewish, um, uh, Jewish background. I could have been on the other side. And the mistake is thinking in those terms to begin with. Uh, Jude, um, I think maybe this, you might have something to say to this. Yeah, very briefly, Daryl, thanks. Uh, when I used the word binary, uh, I, I used really uh, the term by assuming that humanity is divided on the basis of certain conditions. And all the poets whom I quoted, whose work I have been using immensely, they resist certain conditions that create binaries from the perspective of the most vulnerable. And it is only with that positionality you can overcome the binaries, not otherwise. Not otherwise. So I'm not using the word binary in a simplistic way, no. Okay, thank you. And Julie, you get to have the last word. Fantastic, thank you. Um, so binaries, um, I guess when I think about Beckett, where he's putting his name to a petition, he's, you know, he's signing a manifesto, he's making a donation, yes, unambiguously. He is anti-apartheid. He is, you know, his, his kind of record of, of making decisions on, on human rights and taking a stand is fairly exemplary, although he didn't care at all about women's issues, even though, you know, he surrounded himself with all these brilliant women. Feminism was not something he was interested in. We'll put that to one side. So yes, binaries when it comes to moral, ethical decisions affiliated with political action, but in the writing, no. I mean, Daryl, you spoke at the start about not going to literature for comforting slogans. You certainly don't go to Beckett. Um, like if you look at something like Waiting for Godot, um, uh, one reading of the play is that we have the characters sitting on the fence. Um, so we have Waiting for Godot as a, a kind of a retrospective critique um, of uh, all of the, the, the non-committal people who didn't take action and who therefore facilitated um, uh, terrible things to happen. So you're, you're implicated as a reader. You're not off the hook. You're never off the hook. And there was a question there in the chat about pauses and whether silences have something to do with it. It all has something to do with it. And his, his stage characters having spotlights blazing at them, forcing them to speak, that's because we're the audience forcing them to speak. You know, you don't get out of it with an easy conscience when you read back. Thank you. Um, there's so much more to say, so much more to ask, so much more to hear about. 
Um, but unfortunately, uh, we're, we're out of time. Uh, so if I could just one more time uh, thank our, our four speakers for, for marvellous papers. Uh, thanks to Tamalash Manuscript Book and Print Cultures, Stamping Provenance, Towards the History of the Time of the Year Library. And the next event, Dog Business, is just as military refugees at the borders. The Hobbes are about impact. Here's to the next 10 years.